say good morning, everyone. Ramadan Kareem to all who are fasting and respect and blessings to you, to you and your family. And it's good to see a number of uh, long-standing friends. I was going to say old friends uh, uh, again. And this has been an annual event that we've been associated with since the early 1980s. Uh, so here we are. Uh, 35 years into this organization's existence and just about as long um, an association with the doorknock campaigns and we were asked uh, from the beginning would we assist and that strategic objective then we'll learn from uh, uh, speakers and resource specialists if it's changed any and if it has why and what is it what are the implications of that and what has not changed and uh, what are the implications and uh, something in terms of the track record or accomplishments and achievements of what has uh, remained the same all these uh, years. A number of you in the audience could be up here uh, either because of your own long-standing association uh, with the uh, private sector particularly but also the public sector in the countries that uh, comprise Arabia and the Gulf and some are more recently retired or relocated back here uh, than others. And so I hope uh, some of you will, uh, who fit that description, make yourself known to those uh, that you've said hello to in the networking section here and uh, at, the, uh, at the end, uh, so that people will know that you're back and that they can tap into your knowledge, uh, your understanding, your information, your insight, your cutting edge, capacity for uh, critical analysis and uh, above all uh, your your empathy uh, with issues that uh, often the media uh, does not get right if it treats at all or it gets wrong uh, uh, when it uh, treats them uh, at, at length uh, so there's a challenge for people who've had this firsthand direct empirical exposure not theoretical but empirical hands-on experience uh, to share with them uh, their experience so that fewer of us will make mistakes and more of us can learn and benefit uh, from your advice and suggestions. Uh, the uh, longest standing uh, member of the door knock campaigns uh, that we have worked with uh, uh, most closely is Christopher Johnson. And Chris Johnson is the uh, uh, head of the KKR uh, Saudi Arabian unit. KKR is, uh, you can describe it better or differently, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Chris, uh, trade, uh, an investment firm uh, based, if I'm not mistaken, in New York, primarily in the United States at least. And uh, one of its uh, significant uh, players and uh, participants and representatives is uh, the former CIA director, <coughs> David uh, Petraeus, who was uh, previous uh, uh, commanding general of U.S. Central Command, America's forward deployed uh, forces uh, in the uh, the Arab East, uh, that has played an extraordinary role, uh, but not by itself by any means, but by <laughs> the people that these represent and have come to uh, speak on behalf of. Uh, Fred Shuebi, for example, from Kuwait to be. Uh, perhaps the most uh, articulate and uh, eloquent speaker of what uh, the U.S. Central Command working uh, with an internationally concerted uh, coalition of some 33 nations uh, brought just under 600,000 
Americans and other uh, uh, women and men uh, to Arabia and the Gulf uh, to do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons and the right people with the right results in terms of the liberation of Kuwait and the restoration of Kuwait's national sovereignty, its political independence, and its territorial integrity, all of which had been smashed to smithereens on August 2, 1990. Uh, Chris Johnson lived throughout that period, as did Fred Shuebi and others, and we worked also with Robert Hager uh, of the uh, Amcham in, in Doha, uh, as, as well as uh, with Nakhla al-Jubair. Uh, that we've made uh, reference uh, to before. But uh, Chris is going to introduce Mike Jones, but uh, first, uh, Chris is the head of all of the American Middle East Chambers of Commerce in the entire areas spanning from Kuwait uh, to Muscat and back, and everything in between. And there are three uh, Amchams uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Les Tanker, who's here, was one of our founding vice presidents, uh, long ago was the head of uh, the one in Riyadh, which uh, Chris has also uh, been head of, and John Pratt, who's the chairman of our board, was the head of them all as well, and his immediate predecessor, uh, David Bosch, was the head of them all. So we couldn't ask for a more first-hand, relevant, timely, uh, and uh, involved and engaged uh, group of Americans and uh, the Arab counterparts in the region uh, to try to build this private sector people-to-people -people relationship. Chris Thompson. Thank you so much, John Duke. Uh, thank you all. It's great to see so many old friends. It's great to uh, see some new faces as well. Um, our relationship between the AmChams and the Gulf um, Middle East Council of American Chambers of Commerce, our AMCHAM, ABGR, and RIAD, and the other groups represented here, uh, we share a very close and, um, and common set of goals with the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. We all believe in, um, in a, a history of strong and cooperative relations. We believe in the potential for this to grow further, and our mission is to help American businesses and uh, sectors of our economy and our community and our society uh, realize the opportunities for mutually beneficial trade and cultural exchange and other types of growth between the United States and the GCC countries. And so it's uh, particularly apt that we should be meeting under the auspices of John Duke, who spent his entire career trying to understand and nurture the potential of that relationship. Uh, John has asked us to speak on some specific issues on trade, economic cooperation, and investment opportunities. And so I'll certainly try to do that, uh, but I'll also, I'd be remiss if I didn't signal some of the things that are really unique and challenging and different today. And this applies both on the Gulf side and also on the U.S. side. There are changes in policy towards the economy and towards the political system and towards in Saudi Arabia, I'd say even the definition of the social contract is under discussion right now. And so there's some very fundamental reappraisals and audits going on about how things are working and how things could be better. And I think this applies in the US as well. So you have two players in the relationship who are both extremely dynamic in their current historical context and uh, where there's a moment of enormous opportunity to realize some benefits that have perhaps been undeveloped uh, over recent uh, administrations. 
Um, so we live in exciting days, and in some ways it's both the best of times and the worst of times. If you look at Saudi Arabia, for example, and uh, focus on Vision 2030, it's been out there for two years now. We're beginning to see some fruit, but it hasn't really been fully implemented. And so we practitioners on the ground are getting a little impatient. We're still living with a legacy system that our Saudi hosts themselves have said is problematic, that there um, is a culture of institutionalized corruption that's led to a big um, accountability exercise in which many leaders of the government and private sector have been confronted with uh, possible charges of corruption. And so uh, there's a new vision of a free society with fairness and with uh, accountability and with governance at a high standard, but we're still living in a legacy system in which some of these wonderful features that we like to claim as being part of our system here in the U.S. have, uh, have not been fully expunged. And then we also have you know, some deeper economic trends that are uh, challenging at best. Uh, you know, oil was in 2012 at, what, $140 a barrel, uh, and, and now we're coming back, but it's still much less than it was, and so there's still a recession. There, there hasn't been the resources to finance a government-driven economy in the way that there was at the peak, and so um, those of us who are operating um, uh, uh, like Jay and others uh, on the ground, are seeing that there have been some cutbacks and delays in payments and uh, big departures. There's been an enormous exodus of expatriates in Saudi Arabia. I, um, I saw one statistic that in the next three months, 1.4 million expatriates are expected to leave. And so um, at the same time, when Vision 2030 is projecting a very aggressive um, investment program. They want to see foreign investment rise from 2% of GDP annually to 10%. Well, that's huge. But in the meanwhile, um, there's what's been described as a war on expatriates. And it's almost impossible for some of the companies represented around this table to get visa blocks for their Western professionals to come into the country. And so there are many uh, sort of fits and starts to this whole program. Um, to, uh, to, to, to honor my promise to John Duke uh, in talking on specifically the issues that he's asked me to address on trade, I think we've had a TIFA meeting here in Washington, and I haven't really gotten much feedback on that. That's our trade and investment framework agreement that we have with Saudi Arabia, and in which we discuss the various issues that arise in intellectual property, in uh, customs, in uh, uh, regulation of various kinds. Um, uh, but, you know, that's where we are in our stage of development of trade relationships. We're at the TIFA stage. Uh, the next stage above that, if we were to really sort of focus on developing the relationship, would be a bilateral investment treaty. And beyond that would be a free trade agreement. Now, Saudi Arabia, you know, even though the administration in the U.S. is protectionist and is not really picking up on some of the initiatives for free trade of its predecessor, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf qualify uniquely for the types of agreement that this administration says it wants, you know, in the sense that Saudi Arabia is not a huge exporter to the U.S. They are a huge importer. Same thing for all the other countries in the GCC. Well, that fits the mercantilist model of this administration to a T. So if we're going to have a free trade agreement anywhere, let it be with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, where there was an initiative to try this a while ago. So one of our um, uh, platform agenda items uh, in our doorknock is we'd like to see the U.S. pursue a free trade agreement with Saudi Arabia. Uh, unrealistic to think that there'd be one with the GCC, given the rifts within the group right now, but with UAE and with the others that don't have it, the ones that do have it are Bahrain, Jordan, Oman, Morocco, but uh, why not Saudi Arabia? It's such an important partner. So uh, that's 
um, where we stand on, on trade. We, we have had some breakthroughs. Um, um, there is now a, in Saudi Arabia a uh, arbitration body that's very professional, that's modeled on the Dubai uh, um, uh, International uh, Finance Court. Um, and so we're very optimistic about that. There is an initiative for a new authority for intellectual property protection. So if they do their job right, maybe Saudi Arabia can get off the watch list that they've been put on because of patent infringement issues. Um, and um, uh, so uh, on, on the trade front, um, there still are some legacy problems. The institutionalized corruption that the Crown Prince is rightly targeting, we'd like to see that uh, um, changed. Um, and, um, the, and, and now one of the issues, though, in Vision 2030 is that it depends on a privatized and deregulated economy, but um, it doesn't really address how do you handle the transition? What are the sort of, uh, what sort of enabling environment will be necessary for the private sector to take on this kind of responsibility? It will require things like um, um, a bankruptcy system. Saudi Arabia and the World Bank indexes. 168th uh, in ease of resolving an insolvency, but there is a new bankruptcy law, so there's progress on that front too. Um, and um, so uh, we, we are hoping the old ship of the uh, legacy system has left uh, the port, and the new ship is uh, visible on the horizon. It hasn't yet arrived, so we're kind of in a limbo, but we're cautiously optimistic. I'd say that's where I would assess our status on the trade front. And then the next issue is economic cooperation, which John has identified. And I'd say that on economic cooperation, uh, the news is generally very good. We have the best long-term relationship in the energy sector um, with uh, the um, legacy of American companies uh, developing Aramco. Uh, we have an interesting dynamic taking place right now in which OPEC still has great influence, and they've had a role in raising oil prices. But the U.S. now has become a big player. and We have a president who said that he's uh, looking for energy uh, dominance. What does this mean? Is that similar to what um, OPEC is trying to do? Does that leave some room for cooperation? Uh, and is that a good thing if we're going to deregulate and privatize? Uh, so these are, um, these are important issues. You know, in, in the area of infrastructure, and we have someone here from Parsons and Leo Daly is here, um, the cooperation is longstanding and strong and solid, and the big companies, Bechtel, Parsons, Leo Daly, um, Jacobs, they continue to uh, uh, play a dominant role in the major new infrastructure projects, of which there will be many. The, um, uh, the four big economic zones that are planned would be extremely revolutionary. Neom up on the Jordan border, Kadia, um, uh, the entertainment city south of Riyadh, uh, Al-Ula, where uh, Medain Saleh is, that's going to be a huge tourist destination, the Red Sea project. Um, in a sense, this is leapfrogging some of those legacy problems that I was talking about earlier and creating the kind of offshore entity um, that could avoid some of these institutionalized uh, challenges of the past. So watch those economic zones closely. They could be um, a key beachhead for progressive global uh, standards in these areas that could then penetrate beyond there. You know, in the high-tech area, I watch with amazement, there's tremendous fascination with every sector of high-tech, and when the Crown Prince visits the U.S., he always goes to Silicon Valley and meets with the uh, founders of the major institutions. We're seeing Amazon building three data centers in Jeddah. We're seeing Oracle getting into this uh, cloud business as well. 
Um, each one of these major uh, social networks, um, Saudi Arabia is at the top of the list in terms of penetration and use for all of them. So Saudi Arabia, though in some ways very traditionalist, is in some ways uh, on the cutting edge of what's happening in technology. Watch for NEOM to be front and center in a lot of um, showcase um, uh, initiatives uh, in things like uh, automated vehicles and things like this. Um, um, and moving right along to investment opportunities, um, there still are, you know, uh, in, the, in, in the same breath, you know, we do have these very ambitious goals and we do have this Vision 2030 that was largely created by experts who don't really live and work in Saudi Arabia from McKinsey and Boston Consulting and the like. And so there's some uh, real issue about um, how um, practical some of these reforms are going to be and how realistic they're going to be. But, um, uh, you know, I would say that um, the investment opportunities promise to be very substantial. Uh, NEOM is projected to be a $500 billion project. That's not going to be government money. It's going to be large private money. The good news is that um, uh, a lot of the thinking and a lot of the leadership is very progressive. And the bad news is that the Chinese are really stealing the show at this point. So we'd like to see the Americans uh, play a bigger role. Uh, and um, the other side of the investment coin is that the Saudis are very serious and very proactive and very practical in investing outside Saudi Arabia, including in the U.S. We hosted Rick Perry, the Energy Secretary. He met with MBS when he was in Saudi Arabia. And they were talking about a $200 billion investment by Aramco and Savic and Shale Oil and in the petrochemical projects um, here in the U.S. Um, and. Um, I think one of the real issues to watch is this uh, Aramco IPO. Uh, that's going to be a very uh, important litmus test of how serious the reforms are. If I were to say what are the main challenges in implementing Vision 2030, uh, they involve people, it involves the culture, um, it involves institutions, and it involves governance. And uh, these are the things that are necessary for a private sector to function and self-police and uh, be become the dynamic locomotive of an economy that we see in the U.S. and that Saudi Arabia would like to move towards. Um, and um, uh, I think that um, uh, you know, on the people side, there is a big emphasis, and Mal is very much involved in this, on education. I think that's absolutely essential. And an enabling environment and a culture of risk-taking, which has not been traditionally part of the Saudi <coughs> private sector. And so clearly um, we have these deficiencies been fully understood and is there a plan to really address them and on, on the institution side uh, vision 2030 assumes a leading role for the private sector which uh, currently is very much uh, kind of in play right now because many of the leading private sector companies have been accused of corruption and the, their system of business has been challenged so you know query is there the private sector in place um, that can rise to the occasion and seize the moment on this. Um, and um, uh, you know, is there more that can be done uh, in leveraging the interests of foreign investors like the companies we represent coming in and having a freer hand that we have now? We're currently hobbled by this restriction on bringing in expatriates. If that were loosened, would that be part of the solution to become a sort of an open gate for American companies to come in and show how we do it. On governance, what's really interesting, and I think it's a thing to watch for the um, Aramco uh, IPO, um, you know, you have a situation, just as one of many examples, where 
uh, you have an executive chairman, Khaled Afala, who's also um, the concessionaire owner. Um, he's the Minister of Energy and Industry and, uh, and Minerals. And so, you know, uh, will that be changed? And will minority shareholders be sufficiently reassured that their interests will be protected when the leadership is really wearing two hats? That's the kind of governance issue that involves conflict of interest that I think will have to be dealt with in some way. And, and then on, on a practical basis, you see that um, there have been some hiccups in the implementation of Vision 2030. There's an initiative, for example, to privatize big sectors of the economy. The airports went first, and the Jetta Airport was privatized, and uh, the contract for the management went to a Singapore company, Changi International, and then it was canceled after eight months. Well, that kind of gave some mixed signals, and there may have been good reasons. Their partner you know, could have had some issues, who knows, but um, uh, there are plans also to privatize the grain silos. There's an enormous localization initiative, and uh, it focuses on, um, on leveraging relationships with defense contractors and with others to uh, produce more of what they sell to the Saudi government, Saudi Arabia. Um, and um, uh, that definitely would create jobs. The ambition is to increase defense procurement from 2% um, local source to 50% local source by 2030. So, you know, is that the way to jumpstart the economy? I think, you know, watch and see how that progresses. That will also be a key to how things work. Um, and um, uh, I, I think, you know, uh, the systems are kind of, uh, the, the old system that we were talking about, the institutionalized corruption and the uh, and, and a government-driven economy versus a private sector economy. These are two very different ways of thinking. And I think you see the same thing in the um, legal system. You have the traditional Sharia system, which under the Constitution is the law of the land, and when it conflicts with regulations, it's the Sharia that prevails. And so there are really two parallel systems that are, haven't been fully harmonized. And so I think that's, there's a lot of work to be done in my field of legal work in harmonizing the Vision 2030 reforms with the legacy Sharia principles in a way where they're working in harmony and not in conflict with each other. Um, and and it's sort of trying to put these threads together, you know, where does this leave us in terms of, um, of what's happening in Saudi Arabia? Uh, I, I think there's a principle that Alfred North Whitehead um, developed. Um, uh, he said that progress is change plus stability. And I think um, you're seeing enormous change, and you're seeing very aggressive, ambitious reforms being proposed, and you're also seeing that in the implementation, it's so new, and it's so there's so many variables that there are a lot of hiccups. You know, and so you see that uh, subsidies are, are are removed, but then there's great pushback, and they're restored. And you see that there are new taxes being applied. Uh, you know, not all of the initiatives have really stayed. And so I think the bigger picture there is that you have a regime that's uh, bold and creative and willing to take risks, but is also responding to the reality of the problems that arise in the implementation. And so, you know, I think this is um, sort of the bigger theme is, and I think it's a, it, it's a good news um, conclusion that I have, that um, there is courage and there is creativity in coming up with good ideas, but there's also a great political attunement and a sensitivity not to push too hard and too fast in ways that break too many rice balls too quickly, such as to upset the apple cart. So uh, I think it's a challenging assignment that the Crown Prince has. I think he's the man for the job, and I, uh, my own uh, vision is that I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that it's all going to come together. So thank you for, uh, for having me, John Duke. I
I hope I didn't offend anybody with my comments, but I'll now yield to Mike Jones. <coughs> Good morning. Uh, my name is Mike Jones. I'm the uh, Washington representative for the Middle East Council of American Chambers of Commerce. And uh, I'm here to introduce our folks to you. Um, uh, we annually come into town and do this door knock where we go up to the Hill, for example. Tomorrow we're meeting with uh, a quarter of the Senate alone. Um, we come in from our various countries in the region and we, I divide them up. I set up the appointments. We set up events like this and uh, deploy our folks across Capitol Hill to, uh, to bring our message to Congress and to the administration downtown here. Um, earlier in the year, we had a very successful trip. Uh, an old friend of mine, uh, Mick Mulvaney, who is the OMB director at the White House, I convinced him to come out to the region, and it was his first official international trip that he took as OMB director. And uh, we went through the region, and he got a real terrific understanding of what it's like to live and work there. So. Um, these are the sort of things that I do for the group. I, I'm sort of the, the organizer, if you will. Um, and I do want to thank uh, Wilkie Farr and Gallagher for having us, by the way. Uh, very kind of you. This is the third year I think we've done this event in this room, and we really appreciate it. Um, I also want to thank Dr. Anthony. Um, we've been working with the uh, National Council on U.S. Arab Relations for years, and uh, we've become very close. Uh, I have the privilege of being able to work with uh, Pat Mancino, I don't know where he is. There he is. Um, Pat is uh, a great guy to work with. He really does do a, a heck of a, a bang-up job for the National Council. And we appreciate the friendship and everything you do for us, Pat. So uh, I also want to uh, start off with our speakers. Um, the first person who's not actually on the list um, is uh, the guy who does all our, our statistics, uh, Dr. Carl Patrick from the... Um, uh, Western, West, Western, yeah, Western New England University. He has, he has uh, economic students um, working on all of our trade and export data, um, which we present to the Hill. And it's, a, it's an excellent uh, set of data that we get to use. It's very convincing. It helps us make our message on Capitol Hill. Um, so with that, um, I'm gonna, I'd ask him to come up and talk a little bit about the trade statistics between the US and the GCC. And, uh, and uh, explain to you sort of the statistical side of it. One good thing about my job is I get to work for smart people like Chris uh, and this group, and I don't really have to know that much. I just have to set the appointments up. So, uh, and thank everybody. So that's what I'm here to do. Um, we thank you very much uh, uh, for having us again, uh, Dr. Anthony. And with that, I'd like to introduce uh, uh, Dr. Carl Patrick. Patrick, and, um, and I'll just sort of stay kind of up here and introduce our folks one by one. So. Uh, please remember to, to our folks, uh, three to five minutes. Um, uh, Chris introduced me to this term, cerebral incontinence. Um, don't have it, please. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Good morning. Um, I would also like to extend my thanks to everyone uh, for being here today. Looking for our, for hosting us. I think the first year that we had this event here, I never made it here because I spent the day as Dr. John Duke Anthony's guest at the National Council learning about the important work they do. And as a result, he and I never made it across town to actually come to this event. Um, the, the following year I was here. Um, 
And so my name is Dr. Carl Petrick. My business card's uh, being passed around. Feel free to take one. I'm an associate professor of economics at Western New England University in Springfield, Massachusetts. And for the last four years, uh, I've had undergraduate students collecting trade data regarding GCC uh, as an export destination uh, for the US. And starting this year as well, we started to collect import data from GCC imports to the region, as well as, uh, as much as we can, foreign direct investment, uh, GCC foreign direct investment into the United States data. That's not on my website yet, but it shall be uh, now that I have the summer to put it up. Um, and if you go to meccac.net, which is the MECAC's website, uh, if you click on the trade data, there's a link to my website where all the export data for this year is. And again, kind of write that uh, address down and there'll be more data up there uh, over the summer regarding imports, et cetera. But for right now, uh, to keep it brief, the GCC is the one of the largest export markets for the United States. It's actually been the, at least the 10th biggest export market since 2010. And until this year, so from 2013 to 2016, it was the sixth biggest export market, which made the GCC bigger than Germany in terms of US exports. And this year, because of a downturn in the region, we slipped to seventh place, which means Germany's ahead of us, but we're bigger than South Korea. Think about that. South Korea has a trade agreement with the United States, and the US exports more to the GCC countries than it does to South Korea. Um, there's been 5.9% annual growth to, of U.S. exports to the region from 2010 to 2017. That's more than twice the export growth in terms of total exports from the United States. This year, 21 states had the GCC as a top 10 export destination for their, for their products, and 12 had GCC is a top five export destination. In Delaware's case, it was number one. It has been for quite some time. And in the case of Washington State, it's number two export destination. Um, and at least 12 states have had the GCC as a top five export destination since 2013. <laughs> GCC matters, not just to the United States, but for state exports. And that's where most of my data is on the website when you take a look at it, because the one-page state reports. And also something that we talked about a little bit, and Chris uh, touched on this a little bit regarding jobs. At the moment, about 10.5 million U.S. jobs are supported by exports. And the GCC, by that measure, in terms of being a, the largest export market by jobs supported by exports, sorry, it's clumsy uh, terminology, GCC is actually the fourth biggest export market when you measure it by jobs supported by U.S. exports. The only countries ahead of, of the GCC as a region, Mexico, China, and Canada, our three biggest trade markets, are the only countries that beat the GCC when it comes to jobs supported by exports. And last thing, just to touch on something Chris said, I'm going to mildly disagree with something he said regarding free trade agreements. It's a, uh, an argument I started making last year where we have a framework, the Central American free trade area, which is not a free trade area, it's a series of bilateral trade agreements between Central American countries and the United States. That's a framework all the 
countries in the Central America plus uh, Dominican Republic have signed up to. And I do believe the GCC would be a good candidate for something like that, simply because it would get around the, the current uh, disagreements between member countries and create a framework that when those disagreements are, are uh, set aside, Qatar could, could, could join in with. Um, and I think that's something worth pursuing. That's something I said last year. It's something I'll be saying on the Hill uh, this year, and we'll see where that goes. But thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Patrick. Um, the, uh, the next person, we're going to uh, just have one representative from each of our uh, organizations that are present here throughout the GCC come up and talk about the business climate in each of these countries. Uh, and uh, with that, I'd like to call up Mr. Fred Schwabe, who is our, uh, uh, he is a chairman of the American Business Council of Kuwait's External Affairs. And, uh, and he's also the uh, secretary of, our, uh, of the Middle East Council of American Chambers of Commerce. So, Fred. Thank you. Greetings to all, Dr. Anthony and distinguished guests and members of uh, the business district in Washington, D.C. Uh, I am French Raby. I'm the chairman of the American Business Council and uh, vice chairman, for, my vice president of the AUSA, which is supports the Army and defense contractors in uh, particular Midwest region, which is you mentioned. Uh, this is a very important atmosphere to talk about. The Kuwait business atmosphere is started in September last year. There was a big delegation from Kuwait uh, during the year visit to Kuwait. It was sponsored by also the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And there was big dialogue and big business dialogues st stand out of that particular meeting. It's uh, up to $14 billion of business with American companies at the time. And it's put in program and it's working on to the government. It's going to fall under that 235 Kuwait Business Development Plan, which is try to develop within and outside also touching on the foreign sovereign funds which is to have a backward investment in the u.s providing a business atmosphere from companies Kuwait established you know the uh, Kuwait direct investment plan which is allows companies to step their own entities uh, under a free tax agreement for 10 years to establish uh, in a small industry, medium industry, also to develop technology and educational institutions. That will provide a good venue for us. You know, as I said also, we built a bridge. Now we try to make the, the trade volume you know, to be greater than before. So also Kuwait had provided a new plan, within the new plan under the auspices of the uh, uh, foreign defense minister, and uh, also with the direction of the defense minister to do a bigger scale of development offshore of Kuwait. So another big project coming in. So we're going to be, American Business Council is working around those ideas to develop more trade and also within the region. Also we try to reach as much as we can within the region to make a very enforcement of GCC cooperative you know, initiative to increase U.S. growth. So in the last quarter, Kuwait have registered 58% of imports from the United States over the GCC country. Not in volume, but in percentage for that particular time. 
So this is good initiative that we are working in the direction that we started in September 2017. So also we are working on that business to have memorandum understanding with the Kuwait Chamber of Commerce and Industry to have these companies come to increase trade delegations. Great delegation we have proved important to bring more American companies. We have so many competitors in our region. We want to be the first foot in hand so we can compete more strongly. So we're going to bring these under the Kadiba and under you know, the new foreign trade laws. We're going to increase that, bring in more American companies. We are working on developing the commercial law with the Department of Commerce. We are working on standards as well to improve so we can compete more. Taxes reduced from 55% on net profit for American companies and foreign companies to 15%, which is a very great thing we did as an American Chamber of Commerce in, the, uh, in Kuwait. So we are really working hard to, do, to develop more atmosphere. There'll be investment in educational projects. We have, when, I, when we went to Kuwait after the liberation of Kuwait, there was one American school there. Now we have close to 16 education institutions and universities and colleges and primary schools, secondary schools, and we have also higher technical school now in Kuwait established by Boeing. So we are really supporting all things and we govern our rally our forces to have the atmosphere. So the business atmosphere in Kuwait as a as of now looks good for us and we're working from our side to provide more American companies and institutions and services to be there. So we are injecting whatever we can into the local economy so we can develop our businesses and increase the volume of the trade between the U.S. and Kuwait uh, in the future. Also, we have a strategy uh, to attract more business entities, <coughs> small and medium businesses. This is targeted for Kuwait to increase more training. We have the Kuwait National Fund. We're working with the Kuwait National Fund. They train Kuwaitis to deal on businesses and they need technical and institution coming up from the U.S. to train these people so they can develop their businesses, providing U.S. services and businesses, hopefully. The challenges we have, that we have still have a competitive atmosphere from other nationals, especially the Chinese and, you know, some of the European countries. But we work on the strategies that <coughs> volume is not really good if you do have it at this we have volume is good when you have something to stand behind you we stand behind our trade lines we stand up our services this is the thing and in Kuwait we have this Kuwaitis they have trade with the U.S. back in the 30s Carrier was the first company to reach there in the 49 establishing trades, so we're building on that history. Kuwaitis, they want our savings, but they need, we need to be competitive, okay? We need to establish regional corporate, corporate taxation for American companies and services. We need that. The more we get, the better we are. We are doing okay, and that Kuwait atmosphere now is really doing good, and we have to push further things with all our efforts and to do the business in the region, which is, uh, now health education, infrastructure. Uh, these are uh, venues and opportunities that are available at this moment, you know, for Kuwait. And Kuwait's going to privatize the oil and gas sector. That means American company can own with a local company 
a share and develop that particular sector. You know, I do lots of oil and gas, and I look at the future that we still have the upper hand in oil and gas sector in Kuwait, in all categories. So we're going to keep this momentum going, and I'm telling you, there's a promising era coming up within the next 10 to 20 years that Kuwait will be a financial and industrial institution that good playground for the American companies to put their hands in there and get there, and together we can do it. Thank you. Thank you, Fred, very much. Uh, our next uh, speaker, very smart guy as well, Mr. Matthew Kirkham. Uh, he's a board member for the American Business Group of Jeddah. Um, I just had the pleasure of going to speak to his group uh, recently uh, out there. And uh, he's also the finance chairman for the Middle East Council of American Chambers of Commerce, which means he's in charge of raising the money that pays my fee. So I like this guy. So. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, it's uh, certainly an honor to be here. Um, <coughs> as Mike said, I am the finance chairman for MECAC. I am the government relations chairman for the American Business Group of Jeddah. Um, we uh, were kind of clawing our way back after a few years of exile, but um, we're making progress, and certainly Mike's visit uh, helped that. Uh, honestly, you know, Chris said most of what I could say about Saudi Arabia, um, but you know, I, uh, I'm an attorney. Um, I, uh, I work for uh, Denton's, and you were familiar with that, just a small boutique law firm. And um, uh, before that, I was a trial prosecutor, so I'm a bit prone to hyperbole. And so uh, basically what um, my message is, just to piggyback on what Chris said, is that Saudi Arabia is is open for business. Um, they want what we have here. And uh, they want it any way they can get it. Um, and unfortunately, um, they are getting a lot of it from China. So our competitiveness, um, if any of you have had the opportunity to read our uh, MECAC position paper, um, competitiveness with the, um, with the United States companies is being hampered by uh, pol tax policies and you know, funds repatriation policies, and they're making American employees um, less uh, less attractive than other employees, to a point where other employees are being favored over uh, American employees because it costs so much to hire Americans. So, what? One of our um, major objectives here, which we uh, we achieved um, part of it uh, last year by uh, with the support of uh, Director Mulvaney, by turning the corporate tax into a territorial-based rather than a citizenship-based system, um, which you know, is obviously great for U.S. businesses abroad. And we're trying to now work on getting that extended to individuals. And it's a hard sell because people think that you know we're a bunch of you know American fat cats living abroad and you know we're benefiting from the foreigner and income tax exception. Um, but what they don't realize is that without this, American employees cost um, more to hire and make us less attractive to businesses. 
And we don't, you know, by doing this, you're not taking jobs away from Americans. You're not shipping American businesses out of the United States. They're already there. They're doing business. Um, but they just can't hire their own citizens because it's much cheaper to hire basically from anywhere else. And so you get a knock-on effect of that, things snowball, and, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, basically what happens is you don't hire Americans, they don't deal with American firms, and then American business suffers. And um, like I said, I, I don't have much to say beyond what Chris said, but uh, to me, um, that is probably the most important thing that uh, MECAC can try to accomplish on this trip. Um, that said, with regard to the kingdom, um, there's not much that I can add to what Chris said, except to say that I think that um, we are entering a new era of stability and progress in Saudi Arabia that has not been seen since probably when the kingdom was founded. Um, you know, His Royal Highness Mohammed bin Salman is will be king for probably 50 years, inshallah, and he is just every day. It's he is ushering uh, an era of you know prosperity in Saudi Arabia, be it social, economic, civil rights, everything you can think of. Um, I just I have a tremendous amount of admiration for uh, for this man. And probably, just from my personal experience, and I'll, uh, I'll finish with this, um, the area in Saudi Arabia that I think shows the biggest uh, potential for growth is entertainment. Um, we now have women can now attend um, public sporting events. We're opening, we're opening cinemas in Saudi Arabia, which I believe have not been uh, open since probably before I was born. I think 1979 was when they uh, closed those down in the aftermath of the events uh, that took place that year. And so, you know, along with, uh, you know, cinema, the opening up of those doors, I'm sure the entertainment and uh, television, music, just more public events where the entire population is going to be able to attend. And I think that's an area that we need to focus on um, as Americans because, yeah, as we all know, we entertain the world. Um, everywhere in the world, you know, depends on American movies, American television, music, so on and so forth. So just, you know, we need to keep our eyes on the prize there and really jump on this opportunity because it's an opportunity like we have not seen before and maybe will never come again. So with that, I will move before. Thank you. Matthew's right about the, the tax issue, by the way, um, the territorial tax. We were pretty successful in getting corporations uh, to, to that place, but unfortunately not individual citizens, which we're going to try and finish up. Uh, our work by, by getting that to happen. In fact, um, that fat cat argument is what really uh, sets precedence on the Hill people. Uh, they don't understand this as a trade <coughs> issue. They think this is a big tax, uh, we're advocating a tax giveaway to wealthy international fat cats flying around in first class. I had, unfortunately had to call Matthew and, and tell him that the individual uh, uh, mandate was not in the in the legislation that passed. He was so upset he pulled his Lamborghini over on the way to the office. <laughs> <laughs>
Anyway, uh, next up, I'd like to introduce a guy who always has a smile. I like this guy. Uh, Robert Hager is uh, a member of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations uh, International uh, Advisory Committee. He's a partner with uh, Squire Patton Boggs, and he's the chairman of uh, the American Chamber of Commerce in Qatar. So, welcome, Rob. Thank you, uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Anthony. It's always a pleasure. I think this is maybe my maybe fifth or sixth year uh, coming here uh, with uh, and your hospitality and and the discussions here. I always find uh, just quite useful. And and thank you for your hospitality. And thank you, Chris. Thank you for helping organize this uh, door knock. Um, you know, we're, uh, it's, it's quite an interesting time on the, on the Hill, and, you know, we're looking forward to, uh, to participating and, uh, and uh, helping uh, make these arguments that I think Matthew just eloquently put. Uh, you know, we can't hide from uh, this issue uh, in these Gulf countries about why aren't there so many, why aren't there enough Americans here? Um, I in Qatar, there are plenty of Americans, but they're in an Air Force base. And so the irony of all this is that what Matthew's talking about is the United States, we are providing the security umbrella for all of this commerce and trade. And are we really winning that trade uh, war uh, that's going on? And it is, it's very competitive. And you can, and it's not just the usual suspects like China, you know, that we, we talk about. And Cutter, we're competing against, and I love Australia. Australia, is anybody here from Australia? So I don't, I don't want to offend anybody. It's a country, what, nine million people. And yet I'm finding US business, we're competing with Australian companies. And why is that? Well, the Cutteries are hiring expats within their big organizations that are making multi-billion dollar or, uh, decisions. But they come and tell me, and say, Robert, I want to see more Americans. But they're so expensive. And I found someone. I found an Australian. And I've hired that Australian. Okay. And guess what? Guess what the Australian does? Well, he writes the technical specs for this multi-billion dollar acquisition. And guess what those technical specs Cover. Do they cover U.S. specifications? Not always. And oh, by the way, I mean, he's going to develop that short list that he's going to recommend to the government. And there's Australian companies on the short list. There's some top U.S. companies, but these are anecdotally the uh, the disadvantage, I think, of this territorial tax and the fact that the U.S. taxpayer. And, and Mike makes the good example about all oh, their fat cats. Well, I'll give you an example in Qatar. Um, Qatar, like many of the Gulf states, has these US educational institutions. It has six major universities. Uh, my alma mater, Georgetown, is there, so I'm very happy. Um, we've got uh, Carnegie Mellon, Northwestern, uh, Cornell Wild, Texas A&M, wonderful organizations. But, what happens to these professors that work there? And we're talking not fat cats that are driving Lamborghinis, we're talking a professor. Well, a professor who gets there, he may have a nice salary package, uh, but guess what? Housing will be, is a challenge. And so housing's expensive all over the Gulf. 
I mean, it could be, and they could, there are very few things that you can own in the Gulf. So someone could be paying $60,000 in just rentals. So guess what the IRS does? Says, well, you know what? If your company pays it, which they do, these or these organizations pay it, that's income to you. So all of a sudden, you have sixty thousand in phantom income. You have kids. A lot of friends of mine. Doha is a great place to raise kids. I have three children, and they moved back to the states, but they had a wonderful time there. Uh, the American School. Uh, Jay Turk, who's one of our, our colleagues in, in there, is the American School, is it 25000 a year tuition? No, 90000 real. So 90000 real. So add that up three times if you have three kids. So all of a sudden, that exclusion that the IRS has generously offered is gone. And an American who is a college professor, not driving a Lamborghini, you can't hire American professors. So what's the purpose? of having a U.S. institution that's supposed to provide the soft diplomacy about U.S. standards and values can't hire U.S. professors. And this is counterproductive. And, it ha and it's done under our security blanket. So I'm, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but these are some of the arguments that, uh, that get with, our, with our, tax, uh, our tax issues. That said, I know you guys want to hear about what's going on in Doha right now. What are the opportunities for U.S. business? Um, and I'm going to go through a couple of areas. Uh, obviously, the oil and gas, just like everywhere else in the region, uh, it has gone through a recession. There's a bit of a uptick now. Uh, but this economy, like all the other economies, are going through diversification. Uh, Qatar, of course, has a major event, that, a major deadline it's facing because it has the 2022 World Cup. And that is driving a lot of projects forward to completion. So the rail project is moving along. Uh, the stadiums are being built. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're not opportunities in these sectors for U.S. companies. Freight railroad is still an issue uh, that needs to be addressed. Uh, if you're in the concession business, hospitality business, tourism business, these are all areas that are going to have great interest for the 2022 event. I think American companies do hospitality and entertainment better than anyone in the world, and that's all part of the needs going forward that the, uh, the Qatar government's going to have. Um, national security and defense. Uh, you probably followed recently Cutter's acquisition of Boeing F-15 aircraft. That is going to mean multiple things. It's going to mean the support mechanisms for the F-15. It's going to mean expansion of LED Air Force Base, a new base for the Cutter Air Force. All of these, if you're in the military construction sector, this is a sector you should you should look into. Um, things like cybersecurity is important. Uh, we had recent, in recent years, there was, throughout the Gulf, there was attacks probably originating in Iran, but in other places that have, uh, that impacted the security environment on the cybersecurity side. That is an area of interest, I think, for, for U.S. companies. Uh, so all of these are coming together. 
There's a diversification plan. I think uh, Chris McKenzie was also hired, so I think the plans look very similar to the Saudi plan, probably similar to the Kuwaiti plan, uh, about diversifying away from the uh, petrochemical resources, developing a knowledge-based economy. So these are all things that are, that are, that are happening. We are going to be here uh, all week. And I think if you have any questions about these opportunities, some of our thoughts about taxation and other issues like FACTA uh, on the Hill, uh, we, we'd love to be able to hear the chat with you. And again, thank you, Mike, and, uh, and thank you, Dr. Anthony. Thank you, Robert. We are going to be here. By the way, uh, we have this temporary website set up for this event, as was mentioned earlier. It's MECAC, M-E-C-A-C-C dot net. And if you want to talk to any of the speakers or chapters within our organization, if you're an American business that wants to go out to the Gulf region, um, I can be found there. My address, phone number, and whatnot, email can be found there. Get in touch with me, and I'll put you directly in touch with each of our groups on the ground throughout the GCC. My, uh, my, my number is... Uh, if you want it, uh, is 202-276-5984. And if you're looking to access any of these folks, again, please give me a call. Uh, the last of our, our MECAC speakers is Mr. Tamir Pukherjee. Um, he represents, he's a board member of the American <laughs> Business Group of the Eastern Province of Saudi Arabia. It's his first time on, at this event. And we welcome you, Tamir, and uh, look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, Mike. Uh, good morning. Salaamu Alaikum. Ramadan Kareem to my Saudi brothers and sisters, or GCC brothers and sisters. Uh, I don't think, after hearing Christopher and Matt eloquently talking about Saudi Arabia, uh, I have much to add, except as I was sitting over there right next to John Pratt, who is a ex Aramka. Nice to see him here. I always love seeing uh, retired Ramkans uh, here in this town. And uh, obviously, John, uh, this title is no exception, so thank you very much. We still have the same energy, by the way. Uh, anyway, uh, I work for Saudi Aramco, and I'm based out of uh, uh, Dharan headquarters. Uh, that's in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. I've been with uh, ABA for uh, roughly about nine years. This is my first time here. But in addition to what Christopher and, and Matt uh, alluded to, I just want to talk uh, two points. As I was sitting over there, I said, what do I want to add to what Christopher and Matt already said? Well, I tell you what, uh, if I could, and uh, I say that very sincerely and passionately, looking to do business in GCC, uh, and I'm talking about in context of Saudi Arabia, what I've seen, what I've observed, not always I can give my input, because I don't have the privy to do that. But I think as Americans, we need to take a step back and start saying to ourselves, we've got to get rid of this, either it's my way or it's the highway. I think we need to get rid of that attitude from our bloodstream. Instead, if we replace that by saying, uh, how can I help you to help me? I think that will get you a lot more attention for a dialogue, for a communication, and hopefully for better tomorrow, for both sides. Uh, 
One other point that I want to add here, in addition to what uh, Christopher and Matt already talked about, is something that may be new to a lot of you guys, but not to uh, Chris and Matt probably. We had a little uh, session, uh, thanks to Mike, uh, uh, yesterday afternoon. I kind of brought that up. And I think this is probably a good idea to bring it up because uh, most of you guys may or may not be aware of it. It's something that they call in Saudi Arabia, ICTVA. It's an acronym. It stands for I-K-T-V-A. Uh, I think, Lala, you're probably aware of that. Uh, it stands for In Kingdom Total Value Added. Now, I gotta tell you, uh, the initiatives were taken and supported by the, by the government, uh, primarily by, uh, by uh, Saudi Aramco and Sabe and a few other big ones. <clears throat> what it calls for is that when you're going into Saudi Arabia to do business, you've got to be able to, it's, it's the number two item in the checklist that you've got to satisfy. That if you're a manufacturing industry, you've got to open up a spot there. You've got to put your footprint there. So that come tomorrow when the finished product comes out, they can proudly say made in KSA. Okay, that's very important to them. And rightfully so. In the process of development, why shouldn't they have that, that vision, that dream? And that's part of, by the way, Vision 2030 as well. It all gels with that. So, it's gonna cost a little bit of investment to all of you guys who are thinking about doing business in Saudi Arabia. Think about that. It's not just, uh, it's my way or the highway. Those days are gone. Those days are gone. So I strongly suggest if you don't know about it, there's a website for it, go look at it and see how comfortable you feel before you're launching uh, your business in Saudi Arabia. It is very important. I tell you, I've been there for some time right now, and if I was a Saudi today, I would demand for that, why not? So we need to make these people feel that we are here to not only help them, but help ourselves as well, or vice versa. So I think with, with, with these points, bear in mind, if you want to talk about it uh, offline, I can talk about it with you. Uh, and I know some of you asked me about IPO in Aramco. I gotta be very honest with you. I can't talk about it. I do some indirect work for that in the background, but uh, I, I'm not the right person to ask those questions. Uh, you're welcome to uh, write to public relation and they will give you their answer. Am I right, John? Was, was I right politically? I know nothing. Oh, you know nothing. Okay. <laughs> All right. I can't even, even though he's an ex Iran Khan, I can't even whisper in his ear. Sergeant Schultz's famous quote. Oh, uh, there you go. Okay. So, anyway, uh, thank you very much. I, I don't have much else to add here, but thanks for coming. And uh, Mike, wonderful. Uh, arrangement. This is my first time and a uh, pretty good impression I got. Thank you. Uh, I want to apologize. I want to apologize to, uh, uh, to you folks. Uh, Ann Jaffrey, who represents our group in the UAE, is ill today and could not uh, make it down here. But uh, the, uh, the program has saved the best for last and to uh, to introduce uh, Nella, I'm going to ask Dr. Anthony to do that because I probably won't do it the kind of justice he will. <laughs> Before I introduce that uh, last speaker, um, one of the stars, uh, when Patrick introduced uh, Mr. Leo Daly, uh, 
uh, we could have added that uh, he's uh, been involved with us now for some time uh, with regard to the Arab Cultural Institute in Washington. Um, it's not been that long since the 2016 elections where uh, Islamophobia uh, uh, ran amok uh, to a greater extent, more massively and pervasively and extensively and extensively than at any point in my lifetime. Yeah, and it was ugly uh, in the extreme. Uh, Arabophobia uh, is uh, synonymous uh, with it in the eyes of the speakers as well as the recipients and the media uh, continues to uh, be non-corrective in this regard. Um, we believe that uh, such an institute that has nothing to do with politics or conflict or with or per se, uh, but uh, emphasizes all the many contributions that Arabs have made to world cultures, world civilizations, and uh, to humankind in general. Uh, it's a dark spot in America's educational system and that curriculum, uh, but it needn't be. We believe that such uh, an institute would be visited uh, by every member of Congress, uh, all of their staff, uh, every professional association uh, member representative in this city, uh, every uh, school teacher in the arts, humanities, and the social sciences within 50 miles from here and their students, and uh, of the 27 million uh, people who visit Washington every year, if only 4% uh, go to the Arab Cultural Institute, uh, that would be 1 million. That's how many go to the uh, Institut de Monde Arabe in Paris, uh, the, the echo of what we would uh, like to have here. And France's population is but a quarter of that of the United States. So there isn't one. There is a small one uh, in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, but uh, Dearborn, Michigan, uh, for all of its positive merits in the uh, oral industry sector, and or in automotive industry of, of America. Uh, it's not a place where every member of Congress goes, uh, or so many uh, millions of, of visitors annually. Uh, this one would be uh, 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 massively different in that regard. Uh, look at the attention that the African American Museum has drawn uh, here in the last year and a half. Uh, difficult to get tickets because of the interest. Uh, uh, so these things can be done well, must be done well. As a, the time sensitive aspect of this, it could not be uh, uh, more uh, important in terms of a national people to people uh, cultural understanding and exchange uh, priority. Uh, Mr. Daly's been involved with this uh, on the design, engineering, construction, uh, aspects of it, and uh, we invite your interest and participation and support. Uh, but now we turn to Nahla El-Jaber. Uh, Nahla has been pioneering and directing uh, a program having to do with uh, placing Saudi Arabian interns in uh, U.S. corporations before they return to the kingdom. So they're already here. There's no hair prayer involved as, as such. And uh, their English is, is already very good. 
and they've adapted to the American way of life. Uh, many of them have been here for four years. And uh, before going back to the kingdom, if any corporation that wants to explore, there's no obligation to hire, uh, but just to get to know one another and to uh, show this young Saudi Raven woman or man uh, what your corporation is all about and the opportunities and how it relates to, uh, to the international economy, the regional economy, the national economy of Saudi Arabia and the Saudi Arabian U.S. Uh, relationship. The same thing applies to the other uh, five uh, countries that, that belong to the Gulf Cooperation <coughs> Council, uh, uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the Emirates, and Oman. Um, but Saudi Arabia is, is the biggest market, it's the biggest population, it's the biggest armed forces, it's the biggest uh, defense establishment, it's the oldest of the six, and the deepest of the six, and it's more, uh, most of multifaceted of the six in terms of its relationship with the United States. Naha el have been raised that I'm going to take it from there. Um, the previous speakers have, um, have provided some interesting information and two of the things that come, uh, become clear is one, is there are a lot of opportunities in the Middle East? And number two is the issue of labor. Um, one is either you don't have enough or you don't have any qualified. Fine, and then you have the issue of a lot of expats leaving the country. That's where, um, for example, our center can help you. Our center um, was established in, uh, several years ago to, um, initially to help students um, actually practice what they learned here, uh, hopefully gain experience here, and then go home and um, uh, apply that at home. But it also uh, set, uh, was established to help um, companies in the United States um, and companies, uh, uh, international companies in Saudi Arabia find um, um, qualified uh, students and graduates to train and hopefully employ in Saudi Arabia. So what we're trying to do is um, we are working with companies uh, in, this, in the United States who are thinking of um, expanding in Saudi Arabia to um, you know, come and to us, work with us, and we can help you um, find some interns to help you, uh, you know, try them, see what it's like, um, get an uh, uh, exposure to Saudi population, Saudi culture. A lot of the people don't know who we are or how we do business, and they base all of their information on what they see on TV and are on the movies. And quite frankly, a lot of the times it's not accurate. Um, sometimes we're portrayed in a negative way. So by taking on our interns. You can uh, get an exposure of who we are. You get some exposure to our culture. Hopefully, that will help you um, um, uh, get rid of some of the um, preconceived notions you have about us. And then also, you get to try them to see if you need uh, employees uh, inside uh, employees inside Arabia, but you don't want to take the risk of going out there. You don't know who to hire, what to do. You can have the opportunity to take them out here, train them, you know, for an internship. It's not costly. And then see if that person is somebody you wanted to continue um, hiring and take, you know, continue uh, the relationship with and take them to Saudi Arabia, where 
after being here, after being introduced to the culture of your com uh, company, uh, but to be uh, exposed to what everything there is to know about your company. And then you also get to know what the student can or cannot do. Um, the, that student can then help you, you know, so many ways. Um, you know, besides the cultural aspect, he can also or she can also uh, educate you on the legal system side, on the uh, culture system, on the commercial system, how to. Um, navigate the system. So there's a lot of opportunities you can find here. But some people don't need um, interns. They don't want interns. They want direct hiring. We can help you for hiring in Saudi Arabia um, so that uh, you don't have to worry about looking for people, uh, you know, spending money to look for them. We are here to help you. We have, uh, we oversee over 60,000 students. Um, we can uh, indirectly give you access through our different services that we provide, be it um, uh, uh, you know, advertisement on our um, social media, on our website. Uh, we are working on improving our job board, webinars um, where you can introduce your company to our students, um, um, meeting with our um, in, with our uh, clubs. We have over 250 clubs in the Saudi, uh, Saudi clubs in the uh, in America. So there's so many ways you can interact with our students to decide if there's students that meet your internship requirements, that meet your need. To learn more about Saudi Arabia, that meet you know the. Um, the nice thing also by um, taking on our students and then hiring them for positions in Saudi Arabia, we've heard about um, the expats leaving. We heard about um, losing your um, uh, position in Saudi Arabia because they're moving to other companies, if uh, or to other countries, be it Australia or um, China. Is when you take on our students and you hire them in Saudi Arabia. What is that student's going to be? As he moves or she moves up uh, rank in the companies, if there is a need for expansion, if there is a need for um, getting other contractors in, who are they going to go first to? What they're familiar with, which is their employer and American companies, because they're familiar <coughs> with American companies. They're not more likely to go towards what they're familiar with than to go to other countries. So this person that you're going to take on is going to be not only helping you understand who we are and give it an insight, but also can help you when you move to Saudi Arabia. Um, and also then, um, not only will he help you with the companies, he might recommend your companies to his colleagues. He or she might, um, when you need to hire or you don't know where to go, he will recommend Americans, he will recommend, you know, there's the, the um, benefits go beyond just giving that internship. That person that you train, and if that relationship turns out to be a very solid relationship, he's going to be a representative of Saudi Arabia, whether you hire him or not. He can be help you network, he can help you uh, meet other clients, he can be a subcontractor. And if you look at the um, people in Saudi Arabia holding major positions, they are Western educated. I can say for sure, the minister, uh, foreign minister, the, um, uh, the um, the health minister, the um, the petroleum, they're all U.S. educated. So they're one of the major uh, uh, people who are holding important positions are U.S. educated. So if they're going to consider a project, maybe they'll consider American companies or American relationship with American uh, businesses before they go to other companies because they know what you do, they know the quality you provide. So, um, so how we can work together again is that we can work with you to get those people that you need here whether, again, whether it's permanent or temporary, to help you navigate our system. All the services that are provided are free of charge. The only time things that we do charge for is when we do have um, uh, job fairs. Um, this time of year, we're not sure if we're going to have one or not. 
that's the only thing we charge for is to uh, cover the cost. And then if you happen to do webinars, all that we ask is that you take care of the, um, uh, the, the cost of running the webinars and we'll make sure that every single student inside your area gets a message saying that you're going to want to introduce yourself to our, uh, our students to, to educate them about your company, what the opportunities are in your company to encourage them to apply to you. So this is basically what we do. Again, um, we are here to help you. We're not here for the money. Our, it's the Center for Career Development is part of Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission, which is part of the Ministry of Education. So we are a government entity. We're not in it for the money. We're here in for two things. One is to help our students, of course, and number two is to help companies make it in Saudi Arabia. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I forgot one thing. If you plan to hire students or train them in the United States, you do not need to change their visa status. Their F1 status comes with an opportunity to apply for OPT-CPT, which can allow people to work for one year, uh, and if they're STEM students, for up to three years. Um, I have, I didn't bring as many as I should. I have some brochures here, and if you need, that gives, tells you about the, uh, who we are, about the OPT program, I have them here, and if you can't get one, um, just shoot me an email, nalgebra at sacan.org, or to make it easier, ccd at sacan.org, and I'll send you the information by email. Thank you. Nahu Chu is a member of the uh, International Advisory Committee, um, and as is Mr. Leo Daly, who's sitting right there. Service. Uh, one of the advantages of having a Nahla uh, today and beyond her remarks is that those of you who uh, are interested and, and following up on this intern idea, it's a strategic investment. Um, uh, the risk is, is zero, uh, not minimum, it's a zero. And you have an individual who you've seen and heard who is your, your veteran in terms of you indicate who it is that you're looking for, you're willing um, uh, to have the atmosphere specific, <coughs> the moment's propitious, you've got someone here who vouch for that person there. It's a labor pool of, of 60,000. Um, the same thing goes for the other five GCC uh, countries. Uh, I hope you'll take advantage of it. Uh, this year we've had, uh, last year and a half, we've had just under 20 Saudi Arabian uh, interns in the Herald office, uh, non-profit uh, organization, and uh, we had space, we'd have more, uh, <coughs> because they're that good, and, and we benefited enormously, and the feedback we get from them is, is the same, uh, so uh, I do recommend that, uh, and ponder the following that, and I believe this uh, statistic still holds true, that uh, since 1975, every day in Saudi Arabia, there have been more uh, American earned and trained PhD holders than there have been PhD holders in the United States Cabinet, the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the House of Representatives combined. Okay. And there are at least 300,000 American graduates of uh, uh, Saudi Arabian graduates of American uh, universities, and there has to be 200,000 at least uh, for the other five GCC countries there. We're talking about half a million human beings. 
And I've never met an American who's a graduate of a single uh, Saudi Arabian university or Kuwaiti, Bahraini, Qatari, Emirati, or Omahi university. Yes, there are those who've gone for a year, semester, uh, but four years, no. I've not met one. Uh, so we're talking about asymmetries of an enormous disparity uh, where uh, those <coughs> of us who work with Saudi Bayman's, Kuwaitis, Bahrainis, Omanis, Emiratis, Qataris, and Bahrainis, uh, who have been uh, educated here in the United States or in the process of being educated here, this is a world of knowledge for us, right at our fingertips there. And uh, they're ever grateful uh, for any individual who's helped them along the path of learning. And we know ourselves that in the ages from 16 to 21 or 22, this is when we're most open-minded, most impressionable, uh, most willing uh, to be experimental, most willing to do things differently than the older generation or our parents did. And so there's that aspect of the opportunity as well. You're not dealing with someone who's all set in their ways or, or uh, in concrete with regard to their views or their aspirations or their values or the principles and ideals. Uh, they're open-minded to a greater extent per capita than Americans are open-minded uh, with regard to uh, the humanness of, of one another. Uh, we have a number of questions, and I may encourage uh, any and all who've uh, had one stimulated in their mind as they've listened to these presentations to write one on a three-by-five card. Um, and I'm going to ask the um, resource specialists if they would uh, kindly um, answer the question from where they sit. Uh, if we can uh, strategically position the microphones in such a way. Uh, to accomplish that. Um, one is an open-ended question. The, the uh, Gulf crisis is the, the euphemistic phrase for uh, the rupture in uh, relations between four Arab countries, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain, and the GCC, but also uh, in the United Arab Emirates and Egypt outside, uh, regarding Qatar. Uh, and Qatar uh, in the United States have stood firm on one hand, uh, but the other four have been um, uh, unrelinquishing in their, their boycott uh, thus far. <coughs> what have been the cost of this from anyone's perspective? How has, and perhaps Peggy, uh, you can respond, how has Qatar adjusted, accommodated to this? What trade and investment patterns, if any new ones, uh, have emerged uh, in the last year? It happened, it broke um, around this time um, last year. Uh, we're sitting in the office with the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, just three or four feet away from him, when someone slipped him a piece of paper um, about this hacking having just occurred, uh, and he looked as though he had seen a ghost. And um, it went downhill, it spiraled from there. Uh, July 5th, the Qataris uh, initialed a new memorandum of 
understanding with the United States for further intensified, extensified cooperation in curbing financing for extremist ideologies. Um, the president subsequently invited all six GCC countries to come and discuss how this could be strengthened and uh, implemented. Um, subsequently, the invitation was rescinded uh, because of uh, shenanigans, so to speak, inside the White House in a circle. Uh, the Qataris have also uh, indicated, as have some of the other GCC countries, of taking an investment position and one of the major American airlines to further italicize and neonize and capitalize the usness in the relationship. To the best of my knowledge, it has not cut off the electricity, at least a third, if not more, of the UAE's electricity comes from Qatar, was generated from Qatar. Uh, it's been acrimonious in the extreme, and those who live in the city uh, are aware of how much has been spent on lobbyists uh, to try to clarify uh, these issues. Um, but uh, as uh, Bob, if you would take the first whack at this and any others uh, to uh, chime in as uh, appropriate. Well, let me, uh, let me, I guess, start, a, I guess, a couple of things. Can you hear me okay, or is this, uh, is that good now? Um, well, I think if, if we think about, I mean, this happened, and now we are a year, and that was surprising, uh, speaking, and now I'm not speaking for the government, I don't speaking for American business. We, we thought these, these rifts had happened in the past, and uh, we thought this would be resolved in the, Normal fashion that these often Sweet did, I'm sorry that these yeah. often take, and so it was a surprise uh, uh, that this continued, uh, and uh, there is no doubt there is an impact, uh, and it's it's it's, a, it's an impact that will be long term. I think what it what happened particularly for our U.S. businesses, Qatar, uh, uh, you know, it's a very dynamic country. Uh, it's also a small market. And many of our U.S. companies, when they were servicing the Qatar market, they were servicing it on a regional basis. And so one of the impacts we're seeing now is that sort of regional way to do business model is now turned up, upside down when we're dealing with, with Doha these days. So many of our you know, U.S. companies who were servicing Doha from a Dubai office or uh, and looking at that as their, you know, Dubai historically has been sort of a hub. And then that model we're seeing has been put into doubt because it is, it takes you as long to get to the United States as it does to get to Dubai now, or Dubai from Doha or, uh, or, uh, or, or vice versa. So that's changed. We've seen that. Um, we've seen a, um, uh, a focus now to sort of realign how we're managing, our U.S. companies are managing their operations in Doha. So that, that's one of the things. Um, we're seeing new um, trade patterns. Um, and we haven't captured all these, but you know, one of the first things that uh, food security, for example, was, was actually an issue Cutter had even before the blockade. 
that became to the fore, and new markets needed to be opened, and those markets uh, became international, uh, Europe, uh, but Turkey, for example, uh, the relationship, uh, we see more Turkish companies uh, in Doha. We're seeing Turkish food products in Doha. And uh, so those are some of the other things that we, we've seen from the blockade. Um, there has been an economic impact. Uh, I think, though, it's dovetailed at the same time with the, with the drop in the, uh, in the oil market, even though Qatar is a gas uh, a gas country, it's still, the price is still, is still there is a, is, a, is a very strong correlation with oil and gas. Um, but moreover, um, and maybe this is where there's conflict, there's, there's a, or there's uh, challenges, there are opportunities, is as you said, uh, uh, Dr. John, uh, John Duke, is there's, everybody seems to be going to the United States. And the countries have been now very aggressively going to the U.S. to look at investment opportunities. And so what a discussion was more, I would guess, academically five years ago or four years ago when if you looked at Qatar's sovereign wealth fund, it was very Eurocentric. That people, there was always a clear to say, you know, we need to diversify. But, and the U.S. was on the horizon. I think that this, this boycott has really accelerated the interest to invest in the U.S. And I think there's also, the Gulf countries are all seeing that as well. Everyone seems to be concurring, comparing, concurring in favor of the government, of the U.S. side. So there's this competition now, I see, to invest in the U.S. So I think there are some opportunities on this side of the, uh, of the Atlantic. But our concern as U.S. businesses is that the models that we all worked on in the 2000, I've been in Bell since 2006, are, have, have changed. And so when and if, we hope, inshallah, this, this, uh, this crisis ends, I still think long term there's going to be an impact on how, I don't think Dubai will be the hub anymore to do business in Doha, even if we resolve this thing tomorrow. And that's, that's all my, it's my opinion, but it's, it's something to think about. And I think that'll impact how we structure, we, the U.S. companies, structure our operations in, in, in the Gulf. Others would like to add uh, yeah. from that? Yeah, I, I would add that there has definitely been an economic impact, and uh, that many Saudi families and businesses and many Qatari investors and companies in Saudi Arabia have cut off at the knees. And I often question, did the leaders who let us to this point take into account the human sacrifices that this would involve. And I also reflect that this is a time of great crisis in the region when solidarity among the like-minded um, Sunni states who are in uh, partnership with the U.S. need to stand together. And this is a very inopportune, unfortunate timing for this kind of a rift to occur, precisely when the tide seems to be turning in favor of the U.S. exploring a more proactive role in places like Syria and possibly in Yemen to uh, try to sort out some of the adventurism that we see from the part of Iran and Russia 
And um, uh, if there ever was an uh, opportunity for the U.S. to show some leadership and some uh, convening authority as a mediator, like was contemplated in that candidate <coughs> proposal, this is certainly it. And there are some signs that this is happening. And Secretary Pompeo's recent visit, I think his words uh, were enough is enough. That's a pretty firm message. And I think he's uh, essentially right on that. And I think it would be uh, to the interest of both sides. The feelings are very high. I heard, for example, uh, American Institute interview of the Qatari, one of the leaders who's here for the strategic partnership um, consultations, and it was very intemperate, and it was very emotional. And so I think both sides need to calm down. The U.S. needs to play a mediating role in trying to get people to play nicely together in the playground again. Well put. Uh, having just uh, returned from the region a few days ago, uh, and working with uh, General Petraeus uh, and two other Americans in one of the GCC countries, this, this repeatedly came up. And um, they gave examples of um, a kind of mutual extraditing of uh, individuals of interest. And what has happened to um, uh, Qataris, uh, for example, have gone to um, Kuwait and that Saudi Arabia uh, wanted to um, question them that um, through some extradition mutuality exchange agreement there they are in Saudi Arabia uh, an example of, of many uh, if not hundreds that uh, Chris has just alluded to that uh, have hurt individuals and uh, families uh, unfairly, uh, uncivilly. And the American uh, Civil Liberties Union and uh, human rights groups have uh, increasingly uh, focused their attention on this aspect that wasn't apparent in the beginning, uh, but uh, has become apparent in more recent uh, uh, days and weeks. Um, perhaps call uh, Patrick, I don't know if you follow this kind of statistic, if you can uh, quantify uh, what gains there have been attributable to this blockade, uh, which has been going on now for 11 months, or losses, um, if, if, if that's a category among your statistics. And then another one, now with regard to Islamic finance, that the GCC uh, region has become the hub of Islamic finance uh, globally. Um, and if anyone would like to comment on how, if at all, and whether there are opportunities and prospects for Islamic finance coming into some of these trade and investment arrangements uh, in the United States as well as in uh, the region. Any takers for that? Regarding the trade data, uh, where it did show up is a lot of growth in U.S. exports uh, to Kuwait, about 50% growth in U.S. exports to Kuwait, and also in U.S. exports to Oman, because Oman has kept ports open. So that actually, that, that's how it does register in the trade data with the, the issues that we're having uh, in the region. Uh, and also to follow up regarding a point that, that Rob made about uh, Qatari foreign direct investment, 
about $10 billion in U.S. infrastructure investment that Qatar is, uh, is investing this year. That's as a growth for this. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out because when these links are broken and Turkish companies come in, a lot of times that never goes back to business as normal. And now the Turkish companies would have the advantage. So the companies that come in during the breach can often have a longstanding uh, advantage. So we'll see how that plays out. But on the flip side, with more with the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund diversifying into the U.S., that of course would have positive uh, linkages and implications going forward. So it's, it's too early to see how this plays out. And inshallah, this will be resolved quickly. We can go back to something like business as normal, uh, for sure. I'll, I'll speak to the Islamic finance. Can I add, go ahead. Just add to one thing. Uh, it's interesting, also from a business perspective. Um, Yes, follow the Sovereign Wealth Fund, because what the Sovereign Wealth Fund will do will also mobilize, we forget in these Gulf countries, it's not just the government uh, that are generators of businesses. There are many uh, very important, sophisticated merchant families, and these families often follow the government. So if you see that something's happening and Qatar is going to Miami, guess what? There's probably several families that are going there, and I bet there's a hotel that's going to be bought, or real estate that's going to be bought. So keep that in mind as a U.S. business when you're, when you're looking at what sovereign wealth funds are doing. I always think that you're following Doha just like you would do the Emirates. Follow their airline. Why, where is Qatar Airways opening up a new route? And you're probably going to find also some investment in business to go along with that. Sorry, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I'll, I'll speak to the Islamic finance issue because I think it's a very significant one in many ways. And uh, it gets to the issue that I was talking about earlier in how do you um, harmonize the traditional with the modern. And Islamic finance is a success story for harmonizing the traditional with the modern. And Saudi Arabia and the UAE have played a leading role. And they have successfully um, bridged the enormous gap between the Islamic principles of finance and the way the world operates. And so uh, yeah, when we're talking about progress being uh, change plus stability, the development of an institutional um, uh, Islamic finance uh, system has been a very good instance of that. And um, you know, in terms of this uh, great tension between the traditional and the modern, um, uh, there's a quote that's very uh, compelling by S. Hodge Fitzgerald in an article he wrote called The Crack Up. He said that the, um, that the test of a first-class mind is the ability to balance two conflicting ideas at the same time without losing your ability to function. And I think this is the real uh, challenge. You know, how do you take a package of principles in the Islamic world and superimpose a modern regulatory state um, and so these are really two very conflicting paradigms. And I think Islamic finance is a success story in which that's been done in a way that allows the Middle East to play a productive role and the Islamic uh, uh, community in the world um, uh, without compromising their traditional Islamic identity. So I think I'd like to see more cases in which um, uh, our uh, Muslim Arab friends in the Gulf um, uh, do the same thing in other areas, in conflict resolution and uh, resolving insolvencies and many other challenges that they're currently grappling against. All right, um, I'm going to get three questions with semicolons uh, uh, between them, so you can come at any of them as you um, as you so please. Uh, what are the investment 
opportunities <coughs> likely to be for Americans and their partners in Yemen uh, once the conflict there has uh, been resolved uh, politically or otherwise. And that's one. Another one is um, what advice would you give to students from the GCC who want to be competitive in the difficult job marketplace? Uh, what skills attributes attributes make such students most attractive to employers? And uh, what's the competition doing in terms of going after these same students? You, you mentioned China uh, coming up on the inside lane and uh, representing a formidable competitor to the United States. Um, the question is, how uh, does it uh, translate into this, that they are becoming more competitive as employers, uh, not just as in investors or, or trading partners, or the, or the state of <coughs> interest there as it is in Africa and Latin America and elsewhere. And uh, lastly, uh, perhaps it could be in a summary way uh, from uh, you, Chris, or Mike, um, regarding the Trump administration. Uh, is it too soon uh, to uh, quantify or just qualify um, trade relations between the U.S. and the GCC since the Trump administration? Uh, are they better or worse? And, and another answer why. Uh, those three questions, one related to Yemen, one related to China as a uh, competitor, and the kinds of skills that GCC students here or recent graduates or thinking of graduate, uh, graduating or even coming here. Uh, what is it that uh, they need uh, to be more competitive with American companies? Uh, and then the question about uh, Trump uh, era or administration, uh, better or worse, and why and how the case can that be quantified? Plus, uh, Yemen. Mike, you want to take a step in? Yeah, I'll, I'll take on Yemen. That's a challenging and a uh, important one. Um, I, I would say that in some ways we face a a crisis in the region today similar to what arose in 1947 when the UK could no longer afford to play a role in the Middle East and uh, came to the US and said we're going to stop supporting Greece and Turkey and Iran and others and it's you or nobody and uh, uh, it was a moment of great vulnerability in the region when the Soviet Union was perceived to be on the uh, on, on the offensive and uh, uh, they had uh, coveted a warm water port and access to the energy resources of the region and so there was a sense that if the U.S. did not get a plan together to stabilize and to create a new order in the region that um, the consequences would be very dire and adverse to our interests. And I'd say in some ways um, we faced a similar moment of tremendous stress and some time ago, maybe 10 years ago or more, um, and the U.S. Uh, position for a while has been um, you know, let's prevent the direst of contingencies, namely a nuclear Iran. But other than that, we've had enough of responsibility and conflict. 
let's pivot somewhere else and let's let them sort things out on their own. Well, that hasn't worked out very well. So I would say that we need to rethink that uh, position and reconsider whether there isn't a moment, maybe not for an investment initiative. I don't think Yemen, is, I mean, anyone's going to get rich in Yemen, but uh, uh, we could get very troubled in Yemen mishandle it. So I would say that maybe we need another Marshall Plan, and obviously the U.S. is not in any mood to write an open-ended check like happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, but something needs to be done ideally in coordination with our friends in Europe who suffer even more because that's where the refugees go, um, and uh, develop a strategy and maybe help the GCC first get their act together because they're key players, and I think Egypt would be a key player, and I think Jordan would be a key player to create some kind of a um, Middle Eastern NATO. It was called, um, uh, in the 50s, there was a board of effort. It was called CENTO. It never got anywhere. But some coalition of the willing of the good guys who believe in the post-war settlement to <coughs> cooperate together to play a positive role to stabilize and create the conditions where Yemen can find its own path in a positive direction rather than as this center for proxy conflict, which it has become, as has Syria become. And I would say that the story is one of American abdication. It's time for uh, America to play a leadership role from in front, not from behind. So those are my initial thoughts on him. I'll ask uh, Dr. Patrick to, um, to talk about the, um, can we quantify whether the Trump administration's policies uh, are helping increase the uh, trade and, and is it working? Um, I point out that the first trip he made as president was to Saudi Arabia, um, and he's placed a great deal of emphasis on the region. And I think it's this, this not just in the area of trade, job creation, and exports from the United States, but as trade rise, Americans abroad and, and our folks in particular with our issues said are American ambassadors of our culture, our economy, and the American way of life. And as trade rises amongst diverse populations, diverse people, standards of living universally rise. And the biggest obstacle to peace in our time, uh, misunderstanding can step back into the shadows of history. But uh, Carl, can you, can you speak to the data, please? Sure. In, term, in terms of total exports, there was uh, an increase this year from the United States. Uh, again, for reasons we've already talked about regionally, there was a decrease in exports. Certainly what has come up with this administration, which says they show up in the data, really in businesses, is uncertainty uh, regarding what the position is. And businesses take uncertainty, and we end up reacting. And we saw this during the financial crisis. It's not unique to this administration. Businesses kind of are looking for which way the wind is going to blow. And as a result, I think we're seeing a little bit of uh, a muted uh, time internationally as companies want to know, you know who's in and who's out. And it's kind of sometimes hard to, to, to recognize and, and uh, forecast in, so, in some ways. Nonetheless, uh, as a businessman, he does know the value of international trade, and therefore that does hamper him. And the good news is, of course, companies are still out there. And so companies are even more important as ambassadors sometimes when you have these uncertainties. This is true in the region between uh, Qatar and, and other, the other countries, as well as internationally with the U.S. and, and elsewhere. And very briefly regarding education and, and the students from the region, I mean, gosh, you're bilingual at least, if not more, you've got a greater understanding of cultural uh, differences and similarities. 
And regardless of how xenophobic we are in the news, companies don't care. That's what they want. And I think students from the region have a great opportunity. And this is true of small companies to large companies. I'll give two examples. Uh, John Huntsman Jr., who's currently the US ambassador to uh, Russia, in his company, he takes junior members of staff with him to international meetings just so he can see how they react. If they go to McDonald's, they're not coming back again. But if they look for local cuisine, they're going to be given their own assignments. Paul gave Paul Mollib as part of their interview process on Kansas was testing how well students are open to new ideas and to new cultures. And I think any foreign student, um, particularly students from, from the GCC countries, have a great advantage when it comes to these kind of issues that American students, or also British, even though my accent doesn't uh, give that away, American or British students are traditionally much more insular. And so I think there's great opportunities, and maybe they need to be better at uh, expressing their advantages because the GCC students tend to be extraordinarily humble regarding their their um, their attributes when it comes to these interviews. And they maybe get become more American in terms of blowing their own horn in a sense. Um, but I think they have great opportunities and advantages, and companies will recognize that uh, going forward. And of course, the important work that you do uh, expressing that regarding the, uh, the Saudi Arabian students uh, as well. To add to that, um, we are trying to encourage our students to develop their skills in the United States and even inside here, here through um, and anywhere they are uh, around the world to interact with Americans and to try to get opportunities to train with Americans because, or, or whatever country they're in because that's another way of exchange, uh, cultural exchange, learning how to do things and to build their skills. As for the students in Saudi Arabia, <coughs> the Ministry of Labor has, often has um, created many programs to help them develop various skills. Uh, and many of the programs are free. For example, um, there's one program where a student can to choose to get two certificates and the government will pay for it just to help them uh, develop their skills so that when they enter the labor market, they are uh, fairly qualified. Um, to take on the jobs um, that um, were left either because expats, uh, expats have left or because the um, changing labor market, the changing business uh, environment requires new skills. So we want to make sure that our students are up to date or our graduates are up to date uh, with regard to their skills. So whether it's inside Arabia through the different programs or out of Saudi Arabia to encourage them to interact with businesses. And also the students who are inside, uh, outside of Saudi Arabia can't take advantage of the courses that are inside. They're not just for in, uh, local students. So we are doing our, we're trying to encourage them to develop their skills. Um, and as the, um, the business environment, or the, uh, the environment changes, so do our, um, the services that we provide. Talk about the Chinese. Uh, uh, you mentioned the Chinese uh, area. We watched the Chinese. We watched the Chinese earlier, and we witnessed what they do. They started to investment. They invested in the oil sector, but they backed up afterward. So now they are different strategy. We try to work with so we can pass that. So we we try to see what they want to do. But as fair of investment, they are not very keen to invest in the area. They want to increase the volume. So they produce a volume of the trade. They have very little partnership with the GCC partners. 
they increase the thing and depend on their cost. So government cost, China never changed for a change from the communist you know, regime. They still work with a communist regime within an, you know, a capital uh, international regime that will put more volume in the markets. That's what they're trying to do all over the world to flood the world with the thing and then create you know, a business entity there. So the, for investment, they have not showed any interest to do any investment really in the GCC countries at all. Uh, other than that, we are working closer to have more investment in the GCC countries as American companies and services. We invested in education now in the different GCC countries. Yes, we are, we are invested several, you know, uh, billions of dollars in education, and now we are really evident in the GCC countries in terms of educational and in oil and gas. So the Chinese. They work on the thing that when you see in markets, that's what they do, the volume and the cost. And, but, you know, in the GCC countries, we valued our products with their products. So if we, if we buy a Chinese product in thermal thing, it will last maybe three months. We buy a American product, maybe last five years. That was the difference. We put the quality and the service. The Chinese have failed to do that. That's why they didn't invest in the region. They want to depend on more export to the region and do more volume. No, we do product, service, and quality. So that we are still competing with the Chinese in terms of quality and stand behind our brand and services. But today, they are not really interested. I don't think they're interested. They might inter be interested in, in Europe more than the GCC because they feel you know, they can have more of their investment. But the GCC country is more smart to have some kind of play with the Chinese. Thank you. Thank you for it. And I'm going to allow Mr. Davis to make a brief remark, and then there are three great questions with which we'll close. Mr. Dale. Thank you, John. Uh, I've got two quick things I'd like to say. One is uh, this program that Nyla Algebra mentions uh, in such an easy way is so important. And uh, I can say that because in the early 1970s, I was part of a very smaller something called Saudi Consulting House. Only architects and engineers and so forth. And uh, it, it went on until the mid-70s when there was a uh, collapse of the or oil market in Saudi and some other places, but the people that came out of that program were unbelievable, and they contributed so much to the the business culture in Saudi Arabia, to the government culture. Uh, it was wonderful to watch, and what you're doing is a hundred times bigger, and will have a tremendous impact. Um, also, uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony uh, talked to you briefly about. Uh, an idea that we're developing uh, called the U.S. Arab Center uh, Institute and a physical building. And we are working on it, programming it, preliminary uh, uh, studies, all that sort of thing. Uh, but what, what's obvious uh, to me, I hope it's all right if I uh, say this, is that it, it can't be just one or two countries that are involved financially, emotionally, uh, physically, 
It's got to be the whole Gulf area, uh, however you define it, uh, Dr. Anthony. But uh, it's very important that you spread the word uh, that this is something that could be very important. Uh, it's ridiculous uh, that the U.S.-Arab relationship isn't celebrated in Washington, D.C. Uh, and, it, and it has a great impact on young people that can visit it uh, and older people who, who can appreciate it and people like me who can party there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's been thought that all of the uh, Arab uh, national days would be held there. And uh, <coughs> the um, leaders at the door and the guards would be uh, Arabs when uh, Americans walk in. And uh, no one could leave the building unchanged uh, for the better. Uh, the um, uh, two points and then these the questions. Uh, Oman is not represented here, nor uh, are the Emirates per se, because of Aunt Jeffrey not being able to make it. But in the case of Oman and Dubai, or Dubai if you want to call it that, um, as was made reference by Bob uh, Hager, that uh, Doha will uh, not uh, lose out in competition uh, to Dubai. Um, but oh, and I, I agree with that. Uh, Oman uh, comes into the picture in the following way, uh, that the head of the uh, uh, Economic uh, Development Department in Dubai and the head of Jabal Ali both have told me, uh, one has said that when Oman gets its act together in uh, Dofar, in Salah, uh, we will lose a minimum of 20% of what we have now. Uh, and the other one said we will not lose less than 10% of what we have now. So what are they talking about? Um, the east-west uh, shipping lanes, the west-east uh, shipping lanes, um, do not go into the Gulf. Uh, it's a detour. Uh, the, of the GCC countries, the closest uh, port nearest those sea lanes is Salala, or uh, right next to it, in the southernmost province of Dofar. Uh, uh, to get out of this uh, main sea traffic, to go uh, through the Hormuz Straits into Dubai, uh, is a two and a half day uh, detour, and then another day to offload, and then another day to reload, and then another two and a half days to get back in the main west-east sea lanes. That's five days right there. In addition to having to go through the Hormuz Strait, and there's a reason why Lord of London is the most profitable company in the world. It's, uh, it can clean your clock, so to speak, uh, on tension-filled days when uh, ships decide whether to go or to, to stay out and uh, tread water before getting a green light to, to go into the Gulf. Uh, Salah and Oman uh, avoid all of that. And of course, uh, the GCC Pan Railroad uh, uh, project uh, would make that happen even more so. But even without the uh, railway, through air cargo uh, from uh, Salala uh, to the Mediterranean and on to Europe, uh, would cut into what uh, Dubai uh, presently has. Um, with regard to the labor situation, for those new to the dynamics of the GCC region, there are three countries that are in surplus of labor, and they are Oman, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain. And therefore, they have uh, 
major to massive employment challenges. Kuwait does not. The Emirates do not. And Qatar does not. Uh, so one needs to appreciate the distinction there. Um, there's been no mention here about uh, Palestine, uh, Jerusalem, or the peace process uh, in terms of uh, how this has affected uh, the image of America, the credibility of America, the respect for America, uh, and trust and confidence in what America says as opposed to what America does on these emotionally, morally uh, riveting uh, issues. So we invite a comment there. Uh, secondly, uh, small and medium enterprises has been a buzzword for decades now, a generation. Uh, that most of the employees in these countries are in small and medium enterprises, but there are obstacles to finding uh, indigenous citizens to work in such enterprises as opposed to the larger firms and Saudi uh, Aramco uh, or the government in, in any event. Uh, so any uh, comment on that? And here's one that perhaps says the answer buried in the question. Um, and Patrick, Dr. Patrick discussed the prominence of the GCC as a U.S. export destination, but noted the lack of free trade agreements, especially compared with other less uh, uh, profitable trade partners uh, in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere, um, with which uh, uh, they do have such agreements. Can anyone explain uh, whether uh, such lack of favorable trade terms between the U.S. and the GCC is uh, attributed to A, will on the part of the United States or the GCC countries, B, political leverage, American or GCC or individual GCC country, unit C, unity among the GCC countries, in presenting uh, the, uh, the uh, otherwise unifying issues to U.S. administrations, or D, something else, or a combination of several factors. Uh, what can the GCC do to improve and uh, can uh, take advantage uh, of these opportunities, and what is their leverage? I can add one, and that is the uh, tendency to uh, of the stronger partner to uh, move the goalpost, and uh, from 1987 until 2008, there were annual meetings between the European Union and the six GCC countries to try to establish a free trade agreement. But it was the EU that kept moving the goalpost and interfering in the domestic affairs of the GCC countries, which is off limits. Uh, the uh, reciprocal agreement was no interference in one another's domestic affairs, and the European Union continued uh, to do this. The prospects of the United States doing this are even greater than the United uh, than the European Union uh, doing that. Uh, but yes, uh, there has been a lack of will on the part of the United States. There are powerful political or domestic forces. <coughs> Uh, that prefer to see Arabs uh, divided and not united, and the United States not tilting uh, towards its uh, natural interest uh, among the 22 Arab countries 
versus favored relations with uh, one of the other country in the region. There's only one Israel, one Turkey, one Iran, one Pakistan, one Afghanistan, but there are 22 uh, Arab countries uh, there. So, um, anybody like to take a whack at any of those three and then we'll close? Um, I'll talk about the free trade agreements. Um, there was a initiative that began around the turn of the millennium to uh, proactively pursue such agreements, and that's where we got the uh, Jordan and Bahraini agreements, and it was perceived as a geopolitical advantage. And we ran out of steam in the UAE, so it was in uh, the UAE. Um, and part of the reason, I think it has to do with something that John Duke just said, uh, the bar keeps rising, that the latest agreement becomes the template from which you start. And at this point in time, the U.S. template includes a commitment to national treatment of foreign investors for natural resource exploration and development. And that's a bridge too far for countries that, for which oil and gas are their um, uh, primary foundation of their economies. And so the UAE would not yield on that point. And I think that was the reason why that um, uh, uh, negotiation failed. Um, and it was also the beginning of a general shift that's kind of interesting to watch in, uh, you know, not only did our last administration pivot to Asia, Saudi Arabia pivoted to Asia at that point too. And there have been five free trade negotiation rounds between Saudi Arabia and China to try to find common ground. Um, they've been uh, singularly unsuccessful and they seem to be at stalemate. So my perception is that the alternatives have not panned out. The U.S. remains the last best hope for a solid and growing and uh, enduring partnership, that there's a tremendous interest in achieving this, that there may be some uh, naivete about what it will involve in terms of opening up the market. I would guess that things like the localization initiative could be uh, considered inconsistent, that uh, that's an interference with the kinds of free market principles that we talk about. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, it would be, uh, it would be um, very controversial and very politically um, risky, I think, both on our side and on the Saudi side and the UAE side as well, because um, um, there's a tremendous tension between the protectionist desire to create jobs and, uh, uh, and import substitution, that's the mercantilist view of um, trade relationships, and the free trade model where the government stands back and lets a thousand flowers bloom. But uh, Carl, you're so much more knowledgeable in these areas. What do you have to say on it? Um, I, I agree with everything that Chris and, and Dr. Anthony said. And actually, my answer to your question is yes, um, because you, you hit all the bits on the, on the head there regarding the problems. I think one of the issues that we have right now is free trade agreements have really become international investor rights agreements and less about trade. And as you said, the framework then, because that becomes the, the baseline framework. Um, and we're going about this a little bit with our hands tied behind our backs now. If we look at it in a way that's saying that, I don't often invoke the World Trade Organization in a, in a positive light, but I'll do it now. Um, we set the bar, we say this is where we want to be. We want it to be like you know a, a full investor relationship as well as trade relationship. But we're gonna spend time to get there. That's our, that's our end point. Here's where we start, and here's the steps that we're going to take. And if, and that's a big if, trade negotiators and the administration in each country 
takes that approach that a positive trade relationship going through a free trade agreement can take place and we can add on to that. But at the moment, and this is not just with the GCC, but internationally, the U.S. tends to take, and again, not even this administration, this was the Obama administration's approach as well, it's an all or nothing approach starting right from the top and not giving yourselves a chance to grow into a further reaching agreement. And I think that's a, a situation, that, that's a mindset that needs to change in order to foster these agreements and these relationships and everything that Mike said about how this fosters growth and uh, you know, more or less unilaterally across, across countries is, is very true. And, and it's a bigger thing than just you know, fat cats with your Lamborghinis or or me with my third hand Lada. Um, you know, it's, it's actually affects everybody. Blue collar workers, white collar workers, small and mid-sized businesses in the United States all benefit from this too. And I think this is where the, you know, this doesn't get across uh, well enough as much as we try and the National Council tries and, and uh, you know, it's, it's ongoing. We'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep pushing. Yes, um, also <coughs> when we're talking about wise people uh, not necessarily always to believe what you hear or what people say and what you read. In the case of the breakdown of the European Union, the GCC Free Trade Agreement talks, which went on from 87 to 2008, we've never come close to at all. Uh, it was convenient for the EU to blame the GCC that they broke it off. Uh, but put under the microscope what are people's interests. Uh, nearer to the reality, the truth was that Germany and the Netherlands felt that there was no way that they could compete with uh, cheaper GCC-produced energy, particularly in the petrochemical field. And this is an enormous uh, part of the German economy, and the BASF, uh, etc., is, is a giant. And the same thing in the Netherlands. Uh, so, not wanting to be blamed for breaking off the talks themselves, uh, they found it more convenient to move these goalposts so that the GCC would call it off. Uh, but this was what was driving it uh, there. So, uh, conniving and contriving is alive and well amongst those who want to protect their interest and blame someone else, not themselves. Fred. I'd like to comment on the uh, free trade agreements. Uh, at the time we started the free trade agreements, most of government services in the GCC were centralized by the government. Now with the new vision of the Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia for making more privatization of government services, we have more free enterprises in the Saudi Arabia. The same thing in Kuwait, going the same thing. Now they will try to turn those in the public from the public to the private sectors. There'll be more opportunities. So the grounds now for to watch out for a free trade agreements in the GCC, I think it's better than before. And, but we, we need an initiative to take place that we should pursue this free trade agreement. And we should press forward because that will benefit us as trade you know, mission there. We can also help us there on the ground. So we need the trade premium because I visited with my colleagues in Jordan. I see now they have more people attracted to, to Jordan and to have development more in Jordan because of the trade agreement. Bahrain recently had a new vision for uh, developing more of that. 
So I think you know the GCC is more closer now than it was 1987 uh, to have a free agreement, and we should pursue it. We should start the dialogue again. And on the ground, we we sense from our colleagues in the GCC when we meet from time to time, they are looking forward to, to see that. But they need us to, to take the approach again because now you know what we are doing. You know, economic, you know. Uh, development and we have open enterprises and in direct investment that was not in the 80s. Now it's open. I think it's the right time to establish those links right now and start the free trade agreements. Thank you. Um.